Do we have any video game buffs out there? I'm sure if you know video games, you know this one that I'm watching right now. It's called The Last of Us, and I tend to be the kind of person that freaks out over video games, and this is really no exception. There's these zombies that are infested by some kind of fungus, and it takes over their brain, and it spurts out all over their bodies. Ugh, it really gives me shivers. But this is such a cool video game because as I'm watching it, I was talking to my friends and they said it's based off of something that happens in real life. No, I'm not saying that humans can become zombies from fungus, but it turns out that ants can. And I just have to learn more about this, so let's talk about it, shall we? Oh, hello there, all you curiosity cadets. I am Kendall Long and I'm the host of the podcast you're listening to right now. Welcome to Little Curiosities, where I talk about all the things I am curious about. There are little sparks of curiosity that I come across every day. There are so many things to be curious about. And this podcast is really about taking those curiosities and going down a rabbit hole of knowledge. And then I share it all with you. And the one really cool thing about this podcast is that it's not only me that's supplying the sparks of curiosity. It's you guys. Every week I will post on my story and I will talk about a subject that I find intriguing and ask you what makes you curious about it. What sparks your curiosity? And I will try to put some of your curiosities inside of this podcast because they will spark something in me and I'll be like, I must know what that is. So welcome to Little Curiosities. I'm really excited to get going. This episode is about zombies in nature. Yes, zombies exist. They're maybe just a little smaller than you expected. Before I get started on this podcast today, I owe a lot of the knowledge that I obtained for this episode from the book Plight of the Living Dead, What Real Zombies Reveal About Our World, dot dot dot, and ourselves. It's by Matt Simon, and it is a fascinating read. It talks about so many different little critters and their quest to zombify as many brains as possible. <laughs> it is such an intriguing read, and it makes you think, if there are so many other creatures that can be affected by zombifying parasites, are humans next? I don't know, are they? But for now, let's dive into the mind-controlling lives of real-life zombies. I took to social media to inquire with you. What do you think about zombies? Are there any real-life zombies that you know of that are in this world today? And I did indeed get a lot of answers. I'm going to read a few of them. Some sparked so much curiosity in me, I had to include them in this episode. This first one is an example of that. Amy says, I believe Haiti has stories of zombies in the modern era in relation to the voodoo religion. You are right, it definitely does. I did some research and the undead corpses actually trace their roots to the Haiti and Haitian Creole traditions that have their roots in African religious customs. According to Haitian folklore and a book called Race, Oppression, and the Zombie, zombies are actually created by a voodoo sorcerer called a Bakker. This Haitian folklore about a voodoo witch has inspired so many books, movies, video games, I'm going to talk a lot about how the voodoo religion and zombies have inspired our pop culture in so many different ways. And in turn, it has inspired this podcast. So I do thank Haitian folklore for that. This next comment left me so, so curious. Juju says, I mean, there are parasites that essentially turn some bugs, I think cicadas, into zombies. 
Oh my gosh, I went down such a rabbit hole with this one. I am very excited to talk about zombified cicadas. I mentioned a lot about it later in the episode. Stay tuned. But all I can say is that imagine spending 17 years underground. You're excited to finally breach the surface, meet the love of your life, and finally mate for the very first time. And then a parasitic fungus steals the show. More on that horror story later on in the episode. Thank you so much, Judge Rosie, for the inspiration. Again, I love when you give me inspiration to add to the episodes. It really just makes them so much more interesting. I've always been one to chase after that carrot of curiosity and go right down the rabbit hole of knowledge. So thank you again for that. Finally, Peter says, ants infected with cordyceps spores. Yes, I'm so glad you left this comment because that is the first zombie parasite in real life that I want to talk about. Going back to the video game The Last of Us that sparks the curiosity for this very episode, the premise is this. A fungus infects humans' brains and turns them into zombies. Sounds like your normal run-of-the-mill zombie movie, but there is a twist. It's a cordyceps brain infection that turns these humans into zombies, and cordyceps mushrooms exist in real life. You can eat them. You can literally go to the forest, forage for mushrooms, pick up a cordyceps mushroom, cook it in your dinner plate, and eat it. And no, it won't turn you into a zombie. Yet. As a little disclaimer, please don't go into the forest and eat random mushrooms. There are so many mushrooms that can kill you because they're very poisonous, and they're really good at disguising themselves as mushrooms that won't kill you. So you always want to be very researched before you eat anything in the wild. I know, it's weird. Didn't we come from being able to forage and eat things in the wild? But trust me, with mushrooms, you want to edge on the side of caution. So yes, I was very intrigued when I heard about this fungus that infected the human brains in this video game. I was even more intrigued when I found out that the inspiration came from something that happens in real life. Yes, our first real zombie. It comes from the BBC documentary Jungles, and it's a fungus that infects carpenter ants in Brazil. This is how it happens. Picture this. An innocent ant is walking along, doing its antly duties. Maybe it saw a dead grasshopper and is so psyched to tell everyone else in the colony so they can bring it back and feast. But then a little sneaky microscopic spore attaches itself to the ant's exoskeleton and makes its way into the ant's bloodstream. It first starts as single cells and then they copy themselves over and over again until they form together to make short tubes. They use these tubes to communicate and share nutrients, and then they snake through the ant's body and penetrate the ant's muscle cells and the spaces in between them. It literally makes this ant into an ant puppet. That sounds like an absolute nightmare to me. Can you imagine? You have no control of your muscles because this foreign fungus snakes its way through your body, controlling your movement. Terrifying. The ant then is forced to leave the colony. Usually during sunset, it climbs really high up on a leaf or a branch right above the colony. Its goal is to get to a very specific location, about 25 centimeters high. That is where it's the right temperature and humidity for the fungus to grow. And again, it's right above the unsuspecting ant colony. I can hear the evil Jaws music looming. The poor little ant will clutch onto a leaf or branch for its life, or at least until the end of its life. It hangs motionless above the colony, and then something really freaky happens. 
The fungus grows a stalk that literally looks like an alien antenna coming out of the ant's head. At the end of this stalk, there is a bulb just full of spores just waiting to shower over those unsuspecting ants. It then emits these spores, and the colony is usually doomed. The fungus goes by the name Ophiocordycep unilateralis. But if you don't want to say that big mouthful, it's commonly known as the zombie ant fungus. This type of fungus is what is known as an insect pathogenic fungus, which is a fungus that can act as a parasite for insects and it kills or seriously disables them. In the case of this poor ant, it unfortunately kills them, most certainly. We know that this zombifying ant parasite fungus inspired the Last of Us video game, but did you know that this is not the only zombifying creature that inspired pop culture? The movie Alien was also inspired by something in real life, especially the chest-bursting scene, where the alien comes out of that poor man's chest to wreak havoc on the world. The writer of the Alien movie itself, Dan O'Bannon, even said this in a reflective essay properly titled Something Perfectly Disgusting. He said, Works of fiction weren't my only sources. I also patterned the alien's life cycle on real-life parasites. Parasitic wasps treat caterpillars in an altogether revolting manner, the study of which I recommend to anyone tired of having good dreams. He goes on to say, When an alien bursts out of a movie actor's chest, it is nature itself that is bursting through, and it terrifies us. Very well said, Dan. And yes, your alien movie has succeeded in giving us nightmares. The inspiration that this famous alien movie writer is referencing to is wasps. Wasps are actually very good at mind control. There's a lot of different species of wasps that control different insects, but the one that I find the most like the alien movie is a tiny, beautiful, shiny, bluish-green wasp that mind controls cockroaches. And yes, there is some chest bursting. This wasp is unsuspecting enough. It is so beautiful and tiny, in fact, that it's called the jewel wasp. What harm can a little jewel do to a cockroach or any living creature, you ask? Well, quite a lot, it turns out. This is the life cycle of the beautiful jeweled wasp. The first course of action for this little beautiful zombifier is to find a nice juicy cockroach. This cockroach has to be pristine because it's using it as food for its offspring. The wasp then tries to sting specific parts of the cockroach's brain. The venom itself can't make its way to the right parts of the brain on its own, so the wasp's stinger is very sensitive, and it knows how to sting two specific areas in the ganglia. In fact, this stinger is so sensitive, when these parts of the brain are surgically removed, as in there are no ganglia inside the brain, the wasp will still look around with its stinger, trying to find the missing pieces like, hey, I knew there was a ganglia in there somewhere. <laughs> It is insane. Imagine you're in a car and it's a red light and you're trying to find that chapstick wedged somewhere inside of your cluttered purse. You're feeling all around. You're like, I know that chapstick is in there somewhere. That's how I imagine a jeweled wasp stinger is. Except you can swap the purse for a cockroach's brain. Next step for the jeweled wasp is to prepare the death den. Da -da -da. <laughs> The cockroach leaves its victim in search of a den where it can safely keep the cockroach and its soon-to-be babies. Does this cockroach want to run away, you ask? 
It's something really weird happens when the roach is stung by the wasp. It doesn't want to leave. It somehow wants to stay complacent, and it starts obsessively grooming itself for 30 minutes. No one really knows why the cockroach wants to groom itself, but my thought is that the jeweled wasps doesn't want its baby to have a dirty meal. The cockroach loses its ability to flee because of the venom, and when the wasp comes back, it will lead its victim to its tomb, usually by the antenna, so it kind of looks like a little cockroach pet dog. And after the cockroach and wasp are safely inside of the den, the mama wasp will sometimes snack on the antenna, being like, hey, I worked really hard finding this den, stinging your brain. Now I'm going to enjoy a little tiny snack before I lay my baby on you. This next step is what I like to call the babysitting job from hell. Because the mother wasp will attach one egg to a leg of the cockroach, seal both roach and egg in the tomb, and let me tell you, only one will make it out alive. I'll give you a hint. It's definitely not the cockroach. The baby wasp then hatches and consumes the cockroach. That's one heck of a first meal. The new little wasp then exnays the nest, leaving the remainder of the carcass behind. Oh, and if you already weren't terrified enough, the venom has another trick up its sleeve. What it does is it slows down the roach's metabolism to ensure that the roach will live long enough to be still alive so it's a fresh meal for the little wasp baby. Oh, and it gets so much worse. The venom the mother wasp uses to subdue the cockroach has temporary effects. It doesn't even last forever. It doesn't even kill the cockroach. The zombification will wear off within a week. So before the roach has time to recover, it'll be too late. It'll already be eaten by the baby wasp. It's so sad because in studies, they show that when a cockroach is stung by the wasp, it takes a week and then it's back to normal as if nothing ever happened. It's like, hey, that was a good rest. I have no idea what happened, but I'm ready to go. The venom doesn't take away the motor abilities of the cockroach. The host just isn't inclined to use them. Studies on stung cockroaches show that when the roach receives a stimuli, such as they touch their leg or wing, it will send signals to the brain, but it won't evoke any sort of behavioral response. It brings truth to the phase, you use it or you lose it. Like I said, there are a lot of different wasp species that zombify different insects. I'm going to tell you a few of them because I had to just add to the arsenal of horror stories when it came to zombifying wasps. There are around 130 species of wasps that are known to zombify different bugs, such as the hyperparasitoid wasp that stings caterpillars. The caterpillar will then act as a bodyguard to the wasp's pupating young as they eat through its body. Ouch. Would you believe me if I told you I've actually seen this parasitic wasp in action? Because I have. I was on a hike one day and I saw from the corner of my eye a battle between a wasp and a spider. They were fiercely buzzing and spinning around in circles. The wasp was stinging this spider. So for the sake of this episode, I researched what happened next and, oh, it's enough to make your skin crawl. All right, are you ready for it? Here we go. <laughs> The horror begins when a parasitic wasp dive bombs a spider and stings it, causing temporary paralysis. This is the part that I saw, and it was quite gnarly to see. The wasp then injects the spider with an egg or just glues it to the spider's abdomen and then flies off. It's like, my work here is done. 
After a few weeks, the egg then hatches into a larva, and then it starts growing by making small holes in the spider's abdomen and sucking its blood like a little hungry vampire. When it reaches the last stage of its development, the larva somehow induces the spider to spin a web. Not really sure if this has something to do with chemicals, but I'm guessing it does. It probably injects some sort of venom or fluid into the spider. After the spider's done with its work, it's done all the heavy lifting, the larva then thanks it by killing it, sucking it dry, and then it builds its cocoon on the spun web. The wasp larva's like, thanks for the house and the free meal, teenagers. Am I right? If you haven't had enough of zombifying bugs, don't worry, I got your back. I have way more that are going to burrow in your ears like earwigs and lay eggs of knowledge. <laughs> And yes, this next bug is just as much of a nightmare as that last comment that I made. So much so that when I showed my sister a video of this bug being zombified, she still has nightmares and cringes at the thought of what I showed her. And I do sometimes too, because the next zombifying bug we're going to talk about is the parasitic flatworm that leaves its victim with disco eyeballs. And let me tell you, this snail's having anything but a groovy time. And yes, I said snail because the parasite I'm going to be talking about is the leucochloridium, which is a parasitic flatworm that invades a snail's eye stalks, turning them into a pulsating disco zombie. And it's not that kind of disco. And here's why. It all starts when an unsuspecting snail eats bird droppings with parasitic eggs inside of them. I don't know what a snail's doing eating bird droppings. It doesn't really sound that appetizing to me, but for a snail, it must be like, ooh, caviar at its finest. And literally caviar because there's eggs inside of it. They ingest these eggs and they develop into what's known as a sporocyst, which kind of looks like a bunch of whitish tissue, and it seats mostly inside of the snail's liver. It sits there and grows larger and larger as it soaks up the hard-earned nutrients the snail consumes, it doesn't have a mouth, so it basically absorbs all of the snail's good stuff through its skin. There it sits, growing larger and larger as it soaks up all the snail's hard-earned nutrients through its skin because it doesn't have a mouth. Oh, and this horror story gets worse and worse because a parasite then castrates the host because it doesn't want any unnecessary energy going to reproduction because it takes a lot of energy to make eggs and sperm. And the parasite's like, I can't have that because I got a job to do and it's stealing all of your good stuff. On a side note, snails are hermaphroditic, so they produce both egg and sperm. As the little sporocyst parasites gobble up all the snail's nutrients, it sends out branches that tunnel through the snail's body and into the eye stalks, which sounds so uncomfy. As I was doing research on this, I found out that snail's eye stalks are also called tentacles. I imagined an octopus with its suckers trying to capture prey. But it's not exactly the same thing. They can retract these tentacles with muscles and then extend them again by pumping them with fluid. And each one moves independently and can also be used to smell. That sounds so weird, especially if that thing's salty. I feel like the snail's not too psyched about that. But these tentacles can also regrow if lost. So imagine having an eyeball that can both smell and regrow when it's severed. Kind of sounds like a superpower to me. Except one thing that snails' eyes don't do that well is see. They can basically detect light and dark, but no color, and it doesn't have a muscle to focus. So we have a snail beat in that department. All right, prepare yourself for the worst part that caused my sister to cringe. 
and myself at times. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. The sporocyst then produces brood sacs full of larvae inside the tentacle, so inside of this snail's eyeball. The larvae then swell up so much that they inhibit the snail from being able to retract their eye stalks. And these parasitic flatworm larvae may sound like nightmare fuel, but they're actually really beautiful. Well, at least I think they're beautiful. They're colorful, decorated with stripes of green and white. They have small little black dots speckled atop the snail's eye stalk. No wonder why they call it a disco party, because these flatworm larvae are pulsating, they're dancing, and they're meant to imitate a caterpillar. They scrunch up inside the eye stalk and extend, kind of like an accordion. It literally looks like these flatworm larvae are having a disco rave party inside of the eyeballs of this snail. They're like pulsating like, I picture Polly D like with the fist bump as they're inside of this eyeball stalk. And they do this because, yes, they're trying to imitate caterpillars to get the attention of birds. It's known as something called aggressive mimicry. It's when an organism pretends to be something else to lure its prey to its doom. Kind of like way back when we were talking about anglerfish with its esca. And the similarity between the esca and the pulsating flatworm larva is that they're both trying to mimic something that looks absolutely delicious. In the case of the flatworm, it's trying to be eaten because the only way that this flatworm can go on to the next stages of its life is to be eaten by a bird and specifically a bird. To accomplish this task, the worm will then mind control its little snail host to go out into the open for hungry birds to pluck its eyes out. Nightmare fuel warning. Maybe I should have given you that nightmare fuel warning a little bit earlier. I tried to do research to figure out how the leucochloridium worm does this. How does it mind control a snail to go out in the open when its natural tendency is not to do that? And again, I kept coming up with chemical manipulation, and the details of that aren't very clear. But somehow the leucochloridium also can discern from night and day, even though it doesn't have any eyeballs that we know of. Because the disco eyes only boogie during the day, so it must be able to decipher between light and dark. Also, the snail loses the ability to tell the difference between night and day because its eye stalks are full of the larva, so it must be the worm that can decipher that. I mean, at this point, the parasitic disco eyes are calling the shots. And you know that movie, I Am Legend, with Will Smith, where the zombies have so much more energy and they're almost superhumans? It's kind of like that with the zombified snails. They have been observed traveling three feet in 15 minutes, which doesn't sound like a lot for us, but for a snail, that's a full-on sprint. They're boogieing. They're going for it. The parasite also convinces the host to stay in higher elevated places and on the upper part of plants, so it can easily be spotted by its desired prey, which we know are birds. Eventually, when spotted, the bird mistakes the groovy snail eyes for tasty caterpillars, and how could they not? Because the eye stalks literally look like a caterpillar, like, hey, look at me over here, come here for a good time. So then the bird hops on over or flies on over and plucks those little tasty caterpillars, which are actually the snail's eyeballs. Birds aren't typically fans of escargot. They don't eat snails. So this is the way for the parasite to trick the bird into eating it. And the rest of the snail's body is left behind, which sounds awful and dreadful until, remember when I told you that those eye stalks have the ability to regrow? 
So they do just that. They regrow, and quite literally, the snail lives to see another day. And this is good for the parasites, because it leaves the potential for the snail to be a host yet again as it recovers. Maybe the snail's not too keen on being a host, but the more hosts, the better. If you're wondering what happens to the parasitic larvae that were gobbled up by the bird, they are in the bird's gut where they breed and release their eggs, and the bird excretes these eggs in its feces, which are then munched on by another unsuspecting snail, thus starting the life cycle all over again. The disco never ends. Party goes on. That was definitely one of the more nightmarish, zombifying parasites that I researched. Do you think you have it in your little souls for another parasitic zombie story? I'm telling you, zombies are horrifying. We knew this episode was going to be scary. Well, I couldn't help but research what Judge Rosie had mentioned about the parasites that attacked cicadas, because I have a soft place in my heart with cicadas. They're under the ground for literally 17 or more years for their one day in the sun. It kind of sounds like a Disney movie, and I related this story with the cicada to The Little Mermaid. The cicada in this case is the poor little mermaid who wants to go out on land and find her prince charming. And the evil parasite is the equivalent of Queen Ursula, an evil fungus that wants to steal the little mermaid, aka the cicada's good time, for its own selfish evil plan. Let's get to the nitty gritty of this more so Brothers Grimm type fairy tale. For this story, instead of a half-human, half-octopus, it's more of a parasitic fungus called a Massospora cicadaena. It even sounds like a witch's spell. This fungus infects the cicada both during mating and its emergence when it takes its first breath of non-dirt-tunneled air. And I had to know, how does this fungus get to the cicada before it even has a chance to leave the safety of its tunnel? The answer is that this fungus releases these infectious spores into the tunnel that the cicada builds in the soil. So they don't really stand a chance. While they're tunneling out, this fungus gets on their bodies, and by then, it's too late. Before I dive too much into what this fungus does to this cicada, I want to talk a little bit more about cicadas and their life cycle. Cicadas spend most of their life underground in these tunnels that I mentioned earlier, when the cicadas finally do emerge from these tunnels, all the other cicadas in unison are doing the same exact thing because this is the time to find a mate. They're ready to get down and party and find their potential match. So you have all these cicadas buzzing around looking for the one, and when a cicada does find its potential partner, they will then fly off to the trees for a little privacy. The female will then click her wings to let her fellow know, hey, I'm interested. The pair will then mate. The female will find a healthy tree to lay her eggs. And once she does this, both male and female will die. I did some research on why cicadas emerged every 17 years. Better yet, how they knew to emerge in unison every 17 years around that time. And how could they tell time when they spend so much of their life underground? The best answer I came across was that periodical cicadas possess some kind of internal molecular clock that notes the passage of years through environmental cues. Somehow they're able to tell how years pass by. But after their 17 years are up, 
They wait for the perfect temperature. It can't be too hot. It can't be too cold. In about eight inches of soil, so eight inches deep, the perfect temperature happens to be around 64 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius. This means that cicadas that live in different areas that reach those temperatures at different times will emerge at those different times. One that emerges in California will emerge at a different time in Virginia just because weather is different there. In researching how cicadas knew when years passed, I found out something pretty dang interesting. So scientists that study cicadas and their life cycles speculate that the nymph cicadas, while they're underground munching on tree sap, they can tell the difference of the season based on the composition of the sap they are eating. So when a tree is going through seasons, when they're shedding their leaves, it will have a different consistency or it will taste different than in the summer when the leaves are full and green and taking in all that good chlorophyll. In other words, the cicada nymph can taste fall. It can taste summer, it can taste winter. And in this way, it has some sort of idea on the passage of time. Pretty neat, huh? When the cicada goes through the 17th round of the tree's buffet, then it knows, hey, it's time to ex-nay this earth-nay, and it makes its way up into the open air for around four to six weeks, which is just enough time to molt one more time, turning a little nymph cicada into a full-blown adult cicada. That's why if you've ever been in an area where cicadas just emerged, you see all of their exoskeletons stuck to trees. When I was in New Orleans, I just so happened to be lucky enough to be there at the time where the cicadas made their debut, and I did pluck a few exoskeletons from the trees to add to my entomology collection, which is a conversation for another podcast. Also, I found that during this time, the cicadas are so loud, so loud, in fact, that I had to find out just how loud they were in measurable terms, and it turns out a big group of cicadas can reach as high as 100 decibels. That's the equivalent of a motorcycle revving its engine if you are a few feet away. That's pretty dang loud. All right, so back to the remainder of the cicada life cycle. I left off where the mom and dad cicada met their end after they produced around 400 or so baby little cicada eggs. These eggs then hatch into nymphs and they burrow into the ground to spend 17 years until they get that trigger to come up above ground. This is when they can either go off and try to find their mate or they're intercepted by these parasitic fungus spores. If this happens, then instead of getting ready to find their one true love, the cicadas will emerge after 17 years like zombies from their grave. <laughs> searching for more cicada victims. So what happens to an infected cicada? It's not pretty. The first thing to go are the genitals, because again, like we learned from the parasitic flatworm and the snail, that's just a waste of energy, so ex-nay with those genitals. After just one week of infection, the cicada's booties will fall off, revealing a white ball of fungal spores. It kind of looks like a piece of used-up chalk. And you would think, this is the end of mating. They will have no desire. But you're wrong. Life goes on as normal. The fungus has actually drugged the cicada by producing some kind of hallucinogenic mix of chemicals to keep the cicada more active. Again, we're kind of seeing a theme with this, with the parasitic flatworm and the snail, when the snail also had super zombie 
speedy abilities because of the parasite that was living inside of it. Kind of the same thing here. These chemicals also help keep the cicada alive while it follows through with the fungus's evil plan, which is flying around with the deadly fungus spores raining from its booty. I imagine those crop dusters where the plane just releases all of those chemicals to kill all of the bugs that are trying to eat the crops. Same kind of thing, but it's with a little tiny cicada in mini form. And like I said, the cicada is not not interested in mating. It's actually more eager to get it on with other cicadas. These chemicals will actually increase the cicada's sex drive, so much so that males that are infected with this fungus will imitate females by clicking their wings, just like mama used to do, to attract healthy males. At this point, my mind is screaming, it's a trap, just like Admiral Akbar in Star Wars, and sadly, it is. Males that are ready to mate will be confused for multiple different reasons that night, and also, they will be infected by the zombifying fungus, renewing the whole cycle over again, killing many, many cicadas in the process. I guess this does leave us with a very tragic ending to our cicada love story fairy tale. Brothers Grimm ending indeed. Alright, so that wraps up this zombie episode of Little Curiosities. How cool is that? Zombies are real. And how absolutely terrifying is that? Do you think they will someday jump to humans? I sure as heck hope not. But just like The Last of Us video game, it's not completely impossible. If you thought this podcast was pretty cool, please share with your friends. I love growing our community. And again, this is a new podcast, so the more we can spread the word, the more I can keep researching and telling all of you about weird things that spark my curiosity. Also, something I love about this podcast is that you have a chance to inspire me to research something to add to my episode, just like we saw with the cicada story. How cool was that? I loved researching something new that otherwise wouldn't have been in this episode. Every week, I will post something on my story. My Instagram handle is It's Kendall Long. And I ask all of you, dear listeners, about a subject I'm planning to cover. And sometimes people will write in things and I'm like, that's such a great idea. I must learn more. So please keep an eye out for that so you can be a part of these episodes as well. Also, don't forget to rate or review this episode. I love reading what you guys think about this podcast, the direction it's going. Again, it's so new. So everything you have to say is very helpful. So thank you. Alrighty, well, don't forget to tune in next week where I will talk about another subject that sparks my little curiosity. Very excited to see what that's going to be. Hey, sometimes I don't even know what the next episode's going to be, and that's what makes this podcast so exciting. Until then, stay curious. Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production, executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson, produced by Ryan Counts House. Edited by Will Tendy. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. 
Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now.